Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see so many of you on this rainy morning. Thanks for coming out and joining us. We're continuing in a series that we're going to be doing all this spring through the chapter. It's one chapter in the Bible that we're going to really be looking at. Chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. It's a famous portion of the scripture. And so we come this morning to verse 4. We're going to read that together and then jump as it, as it takes us to the story of Abel and Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And so you see both those scripture readings for you printed on the worship folder. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it'll be on your screen there as well. So let's read uh, God's word together, okay? Beginning in Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though excuse me, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so let's read a little bit about the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 as well. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to his brother, Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is the word of the Lord. So let's talk about the word commendation. Do you see that there in Hebrews eleven four? It's there twice. It actually comes up a number of times in the first six verses of uh, the book of, uh, in this chapter in Hebrews. And I want to ask this question this morning, and I want to just think about these two words. Do you live with a commended heart or a condemning heart? Because, you, you know, because it can be either. Do you live with a commended heart, or do you live with what John talks about in 1 John being a condemning heart? A heart that's just constantly suffering, feeling guilty and suffering under condemnation because it never lives up to its own expectations or to God's expectations. A commended heart or a condemning heart? And here we see this word commended. What it means to be commended or to have a commendation. And it's a, in the English, it's a word that refers to a formal recognition of virtuous or courageous behavior. So something like a medal of honor given to, to a soldier for his bravery in battle. Or your name engraved upon the employee of the month plaque at your office, whatever it might be, right? You can, you can imagine what we mean. That's a commendation. And here we're told that it's possible to live commended as righteous before God. Now, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he came to John to be baptized there at the Jordan. We actually looked at this text a few weeks ago now. And as he came up out of the water there, and it's in Matthew 3 and in Luke chapter 3, he comes up out of the water and it says that the heavens were opened and a voice from heaven booming, you know, said, this is my son, my beloved, I'm pleased with him. He was, in that moment, commended as having pleased God. That's chapter 11, verse 6 here in Hebrews, to use that language. And what we learn from that passage and what we learn here at the beginning of this chapter is, is that you and I can receive the same commendation from God. 
and it can do the same thing it did to Jesus. It can come right into the core of who you are, just like it did for him, so that you can be absolutely sure that God loves you and approves of you, and you can live confidently and victoriously from being loved like the people in Hebrews 11 do. That the power for the things that you read about in these people here is just that. That it all begins with what Dane Ortland calls a felt awareness of God's heart. A felt awareness of God's love for you. Or to use the Apostle Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, he talks about God's spirit testifying to your spirit that you are the beloved. It's the same word, that word commended. It's the word martyr. That, that there's a testimony. A martyr is not someone who necessarily dies for the faith. It's someone who dies for the faith because they're testifying. And so that, that sense of publicly testifying to the reality of the faith, God's Spirit can testify to your spirit. God's, the, the Holy Spirit commending you as God's beloved and you being convinced because of the powerful work of the Spirit so that your heart begins to internally testify to the truth of it against all the doubts and the accusations and the fears and the regrets that you might also experience. And that, that experience, not of a condemning heart, but a commended heart, that is how you live with spiritual power to do the things here. Conquer kingdoms and enforce justice and be made strong out of weakness and become mighty in war. Right? Doesn't that sound great? Oh, let's do that. But you have to know you have to live from the reality of being committed by God. And so we have to deal with this here as we continue through this chapter. You have to know how to receive this commendation from God. And that is the lesson of the story of Abel and his brother Cain in Genesis chapter 4. And that it occurs in the early parts of the Old Testament, the very beginning pages of the Bible, means that it's more than history. It's not just a story about two brothers that lived once. It's a story about all of us and the right and the wrong way to approach God. It, it illustrates for us a life that God commends. The life that, that God is pleased with in, in these two brothers. And it's interesting. Think about it. How many times in the Bible do you come up uh, you know, against some contrast being made between two people, two different characters in a parable, two different people in a story that are living very different from one another. It's, it happens over and over again. Two brothers, two contrasting ways of approaching God. It's this reoccurring theme. You have it in Genesis, I'm um, excuse me, and um, even in the New Testament in Luke chapter 15 with two brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. And again in Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the tax collector and two people, very different approaches to God. But this is the first occurrence of this kind of motif that occurs over and over again in the Bible, and so it deserves special attention. And we're going to give it that this morning as we kind of look back into Genesis 4, okay? And here's what we're going to learn, is that in order to be commended as righteous by God, like Abel, you have to, three things. You have to understand sin and be actively repenting. Secondly, you have to understand the sin underneath every sin and be repenting of that as well. And then thirdly, you have to be spoken for by the blood of the true and better Abel. And those three things are the pathway to a life that God commends. And so let's look at each as we walk through this together. First, in order to be commended as righteous by God, like Abel, you have to acknowledge your sin and be actively repenting. So Genesis 4 is important for another reason. It's the first place in the Bible where the word sin appears. 
It's the first occurrence of this word. So it's the archetypal story about sin. For Genesis 4, 7, and 8. Sin is crouching at the door, God says to Cain. And its desire is for you, or its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so sin, according to the catechism, is rebellion against God by either doing something that he forbids or not doing something that he commands. And it's a great summary definition, but there's much more to learn about the way sin works from Cain and Abel's story. And we can learn a number of important lessons. And so let's just consider a couple of them together. The first thing I think we can see is that sin is sneaky. Sin is sneaky. I mean, look at the metaphor here. It's instructive. In Genesis 4, God says to Cain, sin is crouching. And the picture you should get is like a lion on the African plains, camouflaged, staying out of sight in the tall grass until the moment when the prey lets its guard down, thinks it's safe, and then he pounces. Sin is subtle. It hides. You're just minding your own business. You don't know you're being hunted. That's the way it works until it's too late. So the Hebrews writer warns of the deceitfulness of sin. That's Hebrews 3.14 if you want to look it up later. The genius of it is that you can't see it. You don't know it's even happening. You're not aware. And so if I were to ask you for, let's just say I was to ask you for three of the biggest, of the biggest struggles, the biggest sins that you're dealing with in your, your life, you know, like just, just give me three, you know. A lot of people would have a hard time with that, but, but if you were to give me three, they wouldn't be the right ones. If I was to say, give me the three things that are the most dangerous things in your life and you were to give me three, you wouldn't give me three of the right ones because the things that are really killing us are the things we don't even know about. They're the things we're not even aware of that we can't see because they're so cleverly hidden from us. They're crouching down in the grass and we don't know that we're being hunted. And that's why Hebrews 3 says that we need one another because other people can see things that you can't see. But the first thing is that sin is sneaky. Secondly, I think we learn that sin, sin is also, well, let me say it this way, that big sins have small beginnings. That's another lesson here. Or to say it this way, that there is no such thing as a small sin. Treat all sin like a big sin. God rejects Cain and accepts Abel. And you notice there in Genesis 4, 5, 4, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 5, Cain's immediate reaction, it says his face fell. He began to feel sorry for himself. Now, it's such a small thing, self-pity. But it quickly grew into something much, much worse, into anger, and then even into murder. And I would, you know, can we all agree murder is a pretty big deal, right? That's a big one. Can you nod your head and let me know? Okay, right? Yeah? That's a big one, right? So we all say, okay, that, yes, that, that's a big one. But it started as self-pity. Now, would we say self-pity is a big one too? Or do we just allow ourselves to live in it and then you know, allow one another to live in it. But see, that's, that's, that's the wrong approach. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you wait until you're ready to kill somebody, you've kind of waited too long. It's too late. Adultery is first lust in the heart. And if you wait to deal with lust after it has become adultery, you're sunk. You got to deal with sin when it's still a small thing. And so I'm dealing with this with my kids right now. We're, you know, we're parenting. We have teenagers. We're parenting. And what we get is, oh, it's not a big deal. And if that's your attitude, if your attitude about sin is that, oh, it's not a big deal, that's, that's, that's a terrible approach. That's terribly naive. Because big sins have small beginnings. 
But thirdly, notice that sin as it's described here, the very first time the word's used here, it's describing a failure to love. It's, and this is really striking to me. that The first time the word is used in the Bible, it's describing a failure along the horizontal and not the vertical axis of life. And so the Bible has a lot to say to people who claim to love God but are hateful or even just indifferent to, to their neighbor. So the test of love for God is your love for others. So let me say it this way, that the way you treat others is often an expression of what you think and feel about God. Cain's issue was with God, not Abel. He was really angry at God. He was upset with God. He took it out on, on Abel. And so we, the, what we do is we, we take out all of our frustrations and disappointments and anger with the Lord on one another. And we don't realize it, we really are trying to deal with him, but, it's, but it comes out, it really manifests itself in the way we treat one another. And that's something we should consider. Now, notice that the archetypal sin here is envy. And I think that's a big deal. Because uh, we, don't, we don't necessarily see envy as, as that big of a deal. But when the Bible first talks about sin, it's describing the sin of envy. Envy being pain at someone else's happiness, according to Aristotle. Romans 12.2 tells us that love rejoices with those who are rejoicing and weeps with those who are weeping. But envy weeps when others rejoice and rejoices when they weep. It's the opposite of love. And it may not escalate to physical violence, but it is violence nonetheless. I mean, think of all the villains consumed with envy. We tell stories about people who, whose lives have become consumed with envy and the evil that resulted. I mean, the evil queen in Snow White. Scar in The Lion King. And for those of you nearer to my age, don't forget Jan Brady and the Brady Bunch. Marsha, 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 right? Jonathan Edwards described envy as the disposition of Satan, the agony of being number two and not number one. And that is the archetypal sin. So be on the lookout for it. Now, what does repentance look like? Well, Genesis 4, 7 is striking. It says that sin is crouching. Its desire is contrary to you, right? It's, it's set against you in warfare is what that means, and you must rule over it. And so let me translate that a bit. Sin is a tyrant. It's a spiritual power. It's not just something you do. It's a spiritual power. It wants to conquer you. It wants to devour you. It's looking for a crack in the door to force its way into your life. And so you have to fight. You can't be passive, not even in the little things. If you let up for just a moment, that's the moment when it will pounce. You have to be vigilant. You have to be on alert. John Owen, the famous Puritan, said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So repentance is going to war against sin, going on the attack, be killing sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, envy, right? Put them to death, he says, because, because you understand the seriousness of the battle against sin. But secondly, in order to be committed by God as righteous like Abel was, not only do you have to understand sin, because this is a story about sin, and be repenting of it, but you have to also understand and be aware of the sin underneath every sin and be repenting of that too. Now let me explain what I, what I mean by that statement. We say this a bunch because it really is important, but Cain and Abel represent two very different ways to approach God. That's really what the story is about. They each bring an offering. So it's about how you approach God in obedience and in worship. They bring an offering, but only God is, God is only pleased with Abel's offering. He rejects Cain. Now why? That's, that's really the question that lingers over the text. 
And it's what Hebrews 11.4 you know, sheds light on for us. It says there, if you look there in that verse, why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Because Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was committed as righteous. God committed him by accepting his gifts. Well, why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? What made it more acceptable than his brother's? And the answer is, of course, because it's here in Hebrews 11 that he offered it in faith. And by that, we mean that Abel intuited something about the proper way to relate to God that Cain did not. Abel had a spiritual understanding of the way things work with God that Cain did not. Cain, we're told in Genesis 4, was a worker of the ground. That's in verse 3. And he brought God the fruit of his labor. When he approached God, he thought, you know, the best way to approach him was with his blood, sweat, and tears. And so he came to God and he said, look, see all my hard work. Aren't you proud? Look at all that I have done. Isn't it great? Aren't you glad I'm on your team? Look at the good stuff that I've done. My life is full of all of this hard work for you. And so for Cain, the relationship with God was based upon his performance. His name in the Hebrew literally means achiever. And so he was the firstborn son. And you know about those firstborn sons. He was celebrated in the family. And so he learned very early to do life through hard work. And so he assumed, he came to assume that the way to being commended by God, the way to get God to look at you and be pleased and accept you is through hard work. You build a spiritual resume. You put in the effort. Abel, on the other hand, we're told, brought a sacrifice. Verse 4 says the fat portions. That means the inner parts. In other words, Abel, Abel brought an animal and sacrificed it to the Lord and gave it to God. So unlike Cain, he knew he knew something. He knew that no amount of hard work would ever be enough. And he related to God not on the basis of his performance, but on the basis of God's mercy. He knew that if he was going to be commended by God, it would have to be an act of grace. And that's the difference. It's that simple. It really is. I know that you're thinking, gosh, you say this all the time. I do. Because the Bible has it right here at the beginning. It must be that important that Cain thought of himself as a good person. Abel knew he was a sinner. In the scene just before this, in Genesis 3 at the end, as, as God is wrapping up his dealing with, with Adam and Eve because of their rebellion, we're told it's kind of subtle there in the text, but there's, a, there's a, a part where there's a sacrifice that has been made and God takes the skins of the animals that have been sacrificed and uses them to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. And it's a lesson in propitiation. Now that's a big important word, but you need to know what it means. That word propitiation refers to God's wrath against sin being satisfied by the shedding of the blood of a sacrifice or a substitute in the place of a worshiper. And Abel, whether he learned it from his mom and dad and just internalized it or what, Abel understood something that his brother did not that had been revealed to the family in the previous generation, that the solution to human, human badness was not goodness. God did not send Adam and Eve out of the garden and say, gosh, you guys really messed up. You got a lot of ground to make up. There's a lot of good you got to do to make up for all this bad that you've done. So good luck. Hope it goes well for you. No, no, the solution to human badness wasn't goodness. The, the solution to human badness was God's grace. And so worship and obedience begin not with doing, but believing. And Abel made his offering in faith toward God's mercy recognizing his own unworthiness, 
resting in God's grace and God's work for him. And it says God was pleased. And that's the lesson. The sin underneath every other sin is unbelief. It's a rejection of God's grace. It's a wanting to do it on your own. Cain's offering was an expression of unbelief because it pointed to his work. It pointed to his resume. He was determined to earn the commendation. But Abel's offering pointed to God's mercy. So for Cain, it was a it was a means of saving himself. For Abel, it was the hope that God would save as he had promised. And that's what it means when it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. He offered it rightly discerning the gospel, even way back here. Rightly discerning the gospel. The gospel being just this, that righteousness with God, commendation from God is not earned, it must be given. And so Cain's offering was tokenism. To keep God appeased, which, let's be honest, is what a lot of Christianity today is. Abel's offering displayed sincere gratitude and joy in God, which made it a more acceptable sacrifice. Now, the lesson is not, let's be careful, the lesson here is not that effort is wrong, that obedience doesn't matter. That's not at all what we're being told here. God says to to Cain very clearly in verses 7 and 8, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He's saying, no, you know, he's, the point there isn't that Cain was wrong to be doing. It's that his doing was wrong. It was deadly doing. Because underneath his doing was unbelief. Right? He was not believing properly underneath his doing. And so you see his anger and his murder. But those things are just revealing what was already there, even when he was doing the right thing. Think about the older brother in Jesus' parable. His brother comes home, you know, and he's angry, and you think, oh, what in the world? Something's wrong. But you realize that that thing that's wrong in the expression of his anger was wrong back here when he was all those years of slaving away for his, fa- for, for his father. It's just now being exposed. And the thing wrong with Cain was not that he was doing and he shouldn't have been doing. The thing wrong was what was happening in the interior of his life. He was not believing the gospel. He was not building his life on the love and grace of God for him. And that is the sin underneath the sin. Underneath the sin of pride, anger, envy, even murder. And so in order to be commended as righteous by God, you have to be repenting not only of the wrong things that you're doing, but also repenting of all the right things that you're doing, but doing them for the wrong reasons to establish your own righteousness through your doing. This is so subtle. But the one who's committed his righteousness is the one who knows they have no righteousness of their own. They know they're a sinner, even when they're, when they're at their very best, and they're, tur- they're tuned in to God's mercy, and therefore, they're merciful. They're repenting of the sin underneath the sin, the sin of unbelief, and therefore, resting in grace for themselves and then being gracious to others. That's the Christian life. Now, it's amazing this is so clear, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, isn't it really truly like, gosh, in Genesis 4, this is so clear? I mean, that early on in the text, here at the very beginning of the Bible? Yes, because, of course, this is the main theme of everything that God has written to us. It's the main theme of everything moving forward. But here's the thing for you and me, as we sit on this side of the cross, on this side of the coming of Jesus into the world, it's even more explicit because of all that happens as the story goes on. And so we have a much greater responsibility because we have a much clearer picture of what Abel intuited by faith here. And so third, if you're going to be committed as righteous by God, like Abel, then the last thing, you have to understand sin and be repenting and understand the sinner and eat the sin and repent of that as well, but you have to be 
spoken for by the blood of the true and better Abel, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, do you see that it says in Hebrews 11.4 that Abel still speaks even though he's dead? Isn't that a strange phrase? What could that mean? Well, it's a reference to this passage where it says, the Lord said to Cain, down in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's a reference to that verse right there. So Charles Spurgeon preaching on that verse said that the voice of Abel's blood went directly to the judgment seat of God with a heaven-piercing cry demanding justice, demanding vengeance. And God, if you read on in the story, is forced to take action by Abel's blood crying out from the ground. It brings curse. He comes with a curse, with a punishment against Cain for his rebellion and wrongdoing. And that's the way it works. But then as you come to almost the very end of the Bible, to Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for those who are living by faith... The way to be commended by God is to come not to Mount Sinai, not to the place of law and judgment, but instead, and here, this is our assurance of pardon, I'll just read it to you again, but it says, but to come, in other words, we're people who in our worship and our approach to God, we come by faith means we come to Mount Zion, not to Mount Sinai, to Mount Zion, and here's the phrase, to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so there you see the imagery again. And this is the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross. So here's the reality. We all stand before God guilty and condemned. Maybe not guilty of murder, like Cain, but anger, self-pity, envy, of course. And God is God of justice, which means he must punish sins. But then, in the middle of this crisis... There's the blood, and the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross speaks a better word on our behalf, because on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed as a propitiation, there's that word again, a propitiation for our sins, the substitute satisfying God's justice for the worshiper, and his blood now, like Abel's, demands justice, just like Abel's, but that doesn't mean commendation, excuse me, com, I can't even speak, condemnation, thank you, Patrick. He got me. That does not mean condemnation for us. See, it's the commendation and the condemnation. Did you get that? Those are tricky. That's a tongue. I should think of that. So let me just start over and say, on the cross, Jesus' blood was shed as a propitiation for our sins, satisfying God's justice. And his blood demands justice, just like Abel's, but that does not mean condemnation for those who are living by faith. It means salvation. For God cannot demand payment for sin twice. He cannot ask for two payments, Jesus' payment and then your payment. And if Jesus Christ has made payment for your sins, then justice demands that he forgive all of your sins for Jesus' sake. And so the better word Jesus' blood speaks is something like this. You can imagine, and I want you to imagine Jesus before God in heaven saying, to him, it would be unjust for you to not accept those who believe in me as your beloved. It would be unjust for you to fail to acquit them. It would be utterly unjust for you to ever give up on them. I mean, understand the image here. Jesus is standing before God in heaven, holding out his pierced hands, saying, I demand justice. Look at my wounds. 
Look at the blood. Will you not regard the sacrifice that I have made to save them? The blood of Abel crying out from the ground prevailed upon God so that he would respond in justice, cursing Cain in the story in Genesis chapter 4, but infinitely more so. The blood of his dear son Jesus, the treasure of his heart, prevails upon his heart, which was already ready to show mercy. It's not like Jesus had to wring it out of God to show mercy. God was ready and willing, and along comes the blood crying out, and and he's prevailed upon to respond with justice for us. Not just forgiveness, but the commendation that Jesus himself received. This is my beloved. I'm well pleased. Now, before we finish, Charles Spurgeon, in the sermon I mentioned earlier, he made the point that the blood of Jesus not only speaks a better word on our behalf to God, but it also speaks a better word to our own hearts. It speaks to our hearts. It has the power to overthrow our condemning hearts and to assure us of God's love for us no matter what, even when we're at our worst, so that we can live with commended hearts and not condemning hearts. And that's the key to a life of spiritual power for obedience. You see, if the motivational core for all sin is being unsure of God's love, failing to rest in the gospel and instead trying to prove yourself. If that's where all, and that is, that's what we're saying, that's where all of the self-pity and the anger and the envy, the conflict and the strife and even murder comes from. That's where it all comes from. Then that is where you have to take the battle. I mean, the battle against sin is a battle for faith and not, and not unbelief. And it has to happen there at that root. Well, then if that's true, then the only way to be radically healed, to be radically healed and changed is to hear the blood of Jesus in your own heart by faith crying out, it is finished. There's nothing more that must be done. There's no badness in you that is greater than the good that he has accomplished for you, if you believe. The hymn writer Augustus Toplady really summed this up well in a, in a famous hymn, and I love the title of the hymn, From Whence This Fear and Unbelief. And here's, here's the way he put it. He says, From whence this fear... And unbelief hath not the Father put the grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged to thee? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my wounded surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his effective blood, nor fear thy banishment from God since Jesus died for thee. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, may that hymn be the song of our heart. Even now as we come to gather together at this table to celebrate yet again the good news that the commendation we receive from you is not earned, it is given. And that's what you mean to do as we come now to celebrate this meal, to reorient our hearts once again to the reality of your grace, away from our trying to earn our way, trying to, through our own spiritual performance and, and resume building, try to get you to pay attention and notice us. There's, we, there's no need for that. Your heart is already predisposed toward mercy and love for us. If we would just lay our deadly doing down and come to you, entreating you for mercy. That's the only thing. All the fitness you require is for us to feel our need. And so I pray that your spirit would work to bring us to that place of need, to that sinner's place where we readily acknowledge before you we're guilty. 
knowing that there is no threat because you're a friend of sinners, because you're a God who has worked. And now there's a blood that speaks a word crying out for justice, for forgiveness for for all of those who would shelter itself uh, in its wake. And so, Father, help us. Help us to come to that place this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, that's a great song. So the first step of faith is just to say this, in case you're wondering, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, it is just to turn to him and say, Jesus, there is, there is no one else. There is no other hope for one like me except what you have done. And then to build your whole life upon his love. And to say, right, to just build your life upon his love and to go in obedience to him and live a life of faith. And so that's what these words really call us to. It's ascending, but it's a promise that as we're sent, we're sent not to go and earn our way through this world, but we're sent already having the Father smile if if your faith is in him and living every day underneath that smile and the power of knowing you're loved. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You go in his peace.